I'm Mike Sugarman. And I'm Janice Wright. And this is I'm Still Rolling. For almost two decades, he was the voice of the San Francisco Bay Area's afternoons. 6.03 at the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Jeff Bell anchored the drive time slot on the number one all news station, KCBS. With calm, grace, and warmth until he retired in 2022. 600,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID-19. Nearly 4 million have died worldwide. It was, of course, mostly bad stuff happening. Traffic tie-ups, murders, fires, that sort of thing. That's a staple of broadcast news. Our son described the station as the first with the worst, but not all. National Puppy Day. I'm Jeff Bell. So, Dr. Scarlett, March 23rd is National Puppy Day. We were right there with him. Do you realize that we go back 30 years? Also working at KCBS Radio alongside him for three decades. But we didn't know what Jeff was going through personally for a long time. Until he finally opened up. You have OCD. I do. And if that wasn't enough, a double whammy. Now you have a new challenge. Didn't see this one coming. It's an incredible story. Trying to make the best of a horrible situation. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us what OCD is. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, the doubting disease. You know, we tend to think of OCD as people with washing challenges or people who lock their doors and relock their doors and check them over and over again. But it really is much more than that. It, it is a brain disorder and it's marked by obsession, these intrusive what if thoughts that sort of get stuck in your brain. They loop around like that, that earworm, you know, that you sort of hear that little ditty going around your head. It's really annoying. It's a small world after all. That's kind of what an upset, you'll be thanking me a few hours. From now. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's kind of what an obsession feels like. It's just a looping thought over and over and over again. And what happens is we with OCD who have these intrusive thoughts will do anything to get rid of them. So we develop these rituals, which are the compulsions. And we try to get rid of the disturbing thoughts. So if the thought is, what if my hands are dirty? The compulsion becomes, I'm going to, I'm going to scrub my hands until I feel like I'm no longer dealing with dirty hands. And if it really worked like that, there wouldn't be a problem, but it doesn't. Once is never enough. Um, you, you do these rituals over and over again. So it's kind of like the dog chasing its own tail. Um, the OCD comes in many different flavors. There are people who deal with uh, counting obsessions. There are people who deal with uh, contamination concerns. There are people who deal with just just right OCD and having things, needing to have things feel just right for them. Uh, there are people who repeat things in various patterns, but at at the the crux of all OCD challenges are these what if questions. What if dot 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 something happens it becomes a very disturbing intrusive thought that uh, is the target of, of the, the rituals, the compulsions that aim to try to dislodge that thought. So um, it's a debilitating disorder. It affects millions of people. And um, unfortunately, the, 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 I've been doing OCD advocacy for a lot of years. And the good news is it, it's now part of our vernacular. The bad news is it's often misused as an adjective. We hear people say, oh, my boyfriend is so OCD about cleaning his car. Well, OCD is not an adjective that means fastidious or anal retentive. It is a, uh, a diagnosable brain disorder. And I think for a lot of people with OCD, 
it's a challenge right now because it's it the condition itself can be minimized by people thinking it is something as simple as dealing with a fastidious person. Um, the good news about OCD, it's treatable. I mean, and, and that really is the message that I've tried to work to get out there over the many years is uh, there, there are gold standard treatments, uh, both on the medication front and on the behavioral front, the cognitive behavioral front that are proven to work. And I've seen so many lives, including my own, turned around uh, from OCD at its worst by working with a trained specialist to address the OCD symptoms. So that's the good news. Now you say it's a debilitating disease, yet you've had a very successful career and family life. How did you do that? It was a challenge. I lived a very elaborate double life, Mike. And when you two first met me back in the early 90s, I was a freaking mess. Um, so well, we didn't know. We we wouldn't have known that. Nobody knew. No. Mm -mm. I cover I covered it up pretty well. Mm -hmm. but, um, if I kind of deconstructed it for you, I think I think you'd probably go, oh yeah, now I get it. Um, those some of those elements along the way. Um, one of my favorite stories, you know, we worked together at KCBS for all those years, and driving was a huge challenge for me. My OCD was always about what if I unknowingly, through my negligence, harmed or might harm someone or something. A very common flavor of OCD. It's sometimes called hit and run OCD or harm OCD. Um, and so all of my obsessions were, again, that I might be unknowingly doing this, this, this horrible harm to people around me. And the compulsions were to check to make sure that that wasn't the case. So in my day-to-day -day life, the greatest opportunity I had to hurt people was when I was in a car. Again, very common form of OCD. People with OCD um, hit and run or harm obsessions often have struggled to drive a car. Well, in the early 90s, I was a fill-in reporter and anchor at KCBS. And part of my job as a reporter, as you two know so well, was to get in the KCBS news van and drive out to the scene of a breaking news story and report on what was going on. Well, the reporting was the easy part for me. I've always been a storyteller, and that part came pretty easy. Getting to the scene of the crime or the scene of the story was the real challenge because I would be driving along the road in, in the KCBS news van, run over a pothole, and this thought crosses my mind, what if that was somebody I ran over and not a pothole? Typical OCD obsession, the thought starts looping around the head. What if you ran somebody over? What if you ran somebody over? And it was so overwhelming that I started performing compulsions. I would turn the car around and go back and make sure that there was a pothole on the road. I'd see the pothole. I'd feel much better momentarily. And I would drive off thinking my problem was solved only to, to hear that thought, if you will, the thought I, I bounce around my head next. Well, okay, so you saw a pothole, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that there was also a body in the road. Did you check for bodies? No. So I turn the car around, I go back and I check and I see that there's not a body in the road. I feel a little bit better. I drive off, tap, tap, tap. It's my doubt bully on my shoulder saying, did you check the side of the road? So I would turn the car around over and over again. You know, KCBS were everywhere. No, KCBS were driving in circles around the Embarcadero in San Francisco. That's what I was doing. So unbeknownst to our bosses back in those days, I started taking the news van out of our parking garage so nobody would know what was going on, parking it on the street and taking taxi cabs out to the scene of a breaking news story. 
you know, you ought to see the the look on the cabbie's face when I say, you know, take me to to Richmond, the scene of this triple homicide. You can stay in the car. I'm going to go out and report <laughs> on this. But that's what I started doing. I started avoiding situations, and avoidance is the ultimate compulsion for OCD. I started avoiding situations that were triggering. So I spent a good chunk of my income from reporting paying taxi fare to get out to the scene of these stories so that I could keep my job. Let me, uh, a follow-up, as we say in the business. A follow-up. On that, I recall you saying, when, one time I came into the newsroom, you were on the air, I was going to relieve you to do the next shift. And there was something that you hadn't done before I came in, something that you usually did before someone else came in to relieve you, some little sort of ritual to make sure everything was all right. You hadn't done it. And you said to me, well, that shows that you're my friend now or that you feel close to me. Because as you explained it, I may have this wrong, you worried more about hurting strangers yes. than you did about you know people you knew or people close to you. I, I love that you still remember this because this is one of the strangest quirks of all with my OCD. I have a bubble. And if you are in my bubble, that is the highest compliment I can I can give you. Because that means I don't really worry about hurting you. I worry about hurting strangers. And so, you know, if you're in my bubble, I don't worry about you. It is an interesting quirk. There are so many quirks when it comes to OCD. It's nonsensical. And and actually, one of the, the sort of painful aspects of OCD that leads to a lot of depression amongst the community is that those of us with these obsessions and compulsions are painfully and acutely aware of how nonsensical they are. We watch ourselves behaving in really bizarre ways. And we know at some intellectual level that what we're doing is just ridiculous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I actually have a degree in engineering from way back when. I think I would know the difference between running over a pothole and running over a body. But as I like to say, a um, Intellect is the bullied little brother of emotion. And so if the emotional appeal of that obsession, that what if I ran somebody over is overwhelming, intellect is just drowned out. So it doesn't matter if I intellectually understand that nothing bad happened. The emotional drive of needing to go back and check that that road over and over again is so compelling. That's what moves me forward. You have taken your disease and become an advocate. You are running a group called A2A. A2A is Adversity to Advocacy. It's a nonprofit that we established back in 2011 to promote the notion that we help ourselves by helping others. And this came out of my own experiences, but also the experiences of so many other mental health and physical health and life advocates that I ran across years ago who had discovered what I discovered that there is an amazing power to giving back to the community that we're a part of in terms of our adversities. And what I've come to think over the years is that there are four components to this this drive that we have to help other people and, and where it gets us. When we use our empathy in a unique way that is of service to other people with similar challenges, we develop a sense of purpose and that purpose fuels our resilience. So empathy, purpose, service, and resilience, which are four distinct research buckets these days in the academic world. And we wanted to put together a nonprofit that would showcase this concept and some of the empirical research that's being done around these four research areas. 
And at the same time, we wanted to bring together various advocates who were finding that as part of their own recovery process, that they were deriving great motivation from being of service to other people with similar challenges. It's what you two are doing right now. You have taken your recent challenges, becoming paraplegic and caring for someone who is paraplegic, and you have reached out to the world with your story, with the hopes of inspiring other people and educating other people about what you're going through. And I know from previous conversations that we've had, off mic, if you will, that you're deriving great benefit from that and that, that it fuels you and it gives you motivation. That's this wonderful A to A concept. We help ourselves by helping others. And so, yeah, very selfishly, you might say, I got involved in advocacy because as I did, the more I told my story when I went public with what was going on with my OCD, the more I shared my story, the more I was able to help some other people out there navigate their challenges, the stronger I got. And it's this wonderful notion that we help ourselves by helping others. Uh, another way of helping ourselves is, of course, through therapy and all of that. And you've how many books have you written now, Jeff? Just two. Just two? Just two. Okay. I remember from your books that you pieced a mosaic together, as, as it were, of different. You, you, you had to find your own path to, to wellness. Yes. We're experiencing that in the last two years, just the right doctor, the right therapist, the right equipment, the right, and we've realized, whoo, you're on your own out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how, describe a little bit about how, what you put in that mosaic. Well, it's a great question, Janice, and such an important one because a big part of advocacy, I've come to believe, is self-advocacy. You have to advocate for yourself. Um, I was misdiagnosed several times, and uh, as, as I spell out in my first book, I, I work with a couple of psychologists who completely missed the symptoms. I mean, and to be fair, this is going back enough years that OCD was really not part of the vernacular the way it is today. But even in retrospect, they, they should have recognized what was going on. Um, but I fortunately persevered out of necessity and, and actually saw a third and a fourth psychologist that actually got the diagnosis right. The, and, and, and that's when my life started turning around. But had I not advocated for myself, had I not pushed through some of the, the uh, pushed past, I should say, some of the roadblocks that were out there along the way in my own recovery uh, journey, I would never have been able to get well. And a big part of it, and, and this is relevant to the whole conversation, because a big part of it for me was discovering a book called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing. And I remember I was in this bookstore and I was going through the shelves trying to figure out, you know, what fit my challenges. And I was not battling postpartum depression or loss of a loved one. And, and then there was this book, a bright orange book on the bookshelf called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing. And interestingly, in those days, washing was not a compulsion that was part of my bag of tricks. That happened later. Um, but there was something about the words couldn't stop that spoke to compulsion. I thought, that's me. I can't stop what I'm doing. I can't stop these rituals that I'm doing. I didn't use that word, of course, but I couldn't stop these behaviors that I did. And I picked up this book and I started reading it. And the very first chapter, fortunately for me, is about, uh, is about a guy driving down a highway who keeps turning his car around to see whether or not he's run people over. And wow. I kid you not, my first reaction was, I don't remember writing this book. <laughs> I mean, that's how uncanny it was. Yeah. I couldn't fathom that somebody else was doing this crazy thing that I was doing. And 
That guy who was brave enough to share his story in that book um, saved my life. I mean, because had I not run across that, I don't know where things would have gone. I don't know how long it would have taken before I figured out what was going on with my my mental health challenges. And, and that has driven me over the years, you know, that whole notion that if one person hears your story and benefits from it, that that's makes it all worthwhile, right? I mean, don't wouldn't you two agree with your own storytelling right now? Well, I hope oh, yeah. so. There's a reason it happened. And I think part of that reason is for us to tell the story and maybe help other people. That's the way I live right now. I I, I have to figure that some good is going to come out of this helping other people. And you two uh, are such masterful storytellers and, and the, the work you're doing yeah. is just just life-changing. Okay, so you have OCD. That's a, that's a problem for you, but it extends to a lot of other people, your family, your workmates. Uh, how, how has your family dealt with this and how has it affected them? It's tough. I, and, and I've long said that I, I feel for family members as much as I feel for people who are dealing with OCD because it does impact the entire family. And, and here's just one small example, Mike. Um, it is our natural inclination to want to comfort those people we love, right? I mean, when someone comes to us in pain, we want to comfort them. That's what our natural instinct is. For so many years, my poor wife, Samantha, was the target of my reassurance seeking. And so when I would get to work after a torturous drive and have exhausted my physical checking to make sure that I didn't run people over along the way, I would get there and I would be ruminating another form of compulsion, a mental compulsion, a mental reviewing, mental checking. I'd be going through this over and over again in my head. And when that didn't relieve the what if thought, what if I ran somebody over, I'd pick up the phone and I'd call Samantha and I'd essentially beg for reassurance. And Samantha, bless her heart, ultimately had to become part of the treatment process because when she would follow her natural inclination and say, it's okay, honey, you would know if you ran somebody over, you know, I can tell you, you can get on with your day. This is, this is okay. You didn't run somebody over. You would know. That's how we started this whole process. But the more she did that, the more I relied on that and the more of a compulsion it became for me. Ultimately, my therapist had to sit her down in a session with me and say, I know this seems like you're trying to help, but you're actually exacerbating the issues. And so, yeah, it impacts the family. And I, and I would sandbag her on so many different fronts, trying to get her to do compulsions for me. Um, it impacted my children growing up. I, I now know as they're adults, when we have conversations, I can go back and recreate with them how their lives were impacted by my OCD. And it just, it, it further motivates me to help people learn what's going on with OCD in their families so that the other young children out there don't have to deal with their, their parents' OCD or perhaps their own OCD growing up as well. So it does very much impact families, friends, workplaces, and, and beyond. I can very much relate to what Samantha was doing because that's been one of our issues. When Mike was first paralyzed and after his very intense surgery he had, I had to take care of everything. And then as he started to get better and stronger and learning more skills, I had to start to let go. Um, and sometimes I just have to watch him. It looks terrible. It looks like, I mean, it's very difficult for Mike to get dressed. <laughs> I just 
stand there and watch them get dressed. And I don't help because we got to a point where I think even one day, one day, one day I said to Mike, am I inhibiting you in some ways? Am I holding you back? And he very, very easily said, yes, mm. you are, you are. Yeah. And, and that's great self-awareness, Mike, because it's not easy <laughs> to admit that either. Yeah. No, it was too much. It was too much. It, it was I, too I, much. I needed some independence. I still have a little trouble when he goes out in his wheelchair because it's, it's, you know, crazy on the streets of New York. And it terrifies me. And I screech yeah. when he gets to a corner. So, you know, there's a, I have a learning curve still, still on this one. Well, I think that's what's so powerful about what you two are doing with your podcast and with your outreach right now is you're offering a glimpse at both sides of the equation. And that's really important because, you know, for everybody that that can relate to what Mike is going through, other other people dealing with particular adversities, whether they're paraplegic or physical challenges or mental challenges or any kind of adversity, there are going to be those people who relate most directly to what Mike is going through firsthand. There are going to be as many, if not more people relating to what you are going through, Janice, as a primary caregiver. And, mm -hmm. and that just, you know, the, the sum of what you're doing together is, is, is just phenomenal. Well, we also learned, have learned, I say, we're, we're going through this together, but on different paths. We're yeah. not on the same path. Yeah. Um, and you, we can't live each other's lives, but nobody can live each other's lives yep. with or without adversity. You can't, in a couple, a family situation, you can't live another person's life for them. Yeah. Well, what I, I say to Janice is that she's going through everything I'm going through, but like Ginger Rogers, she's doing it <laughs> backwards and in high heels. That's a great analogy. It's just, it's yeah. as hard or harder. Yeah. For... Now you have gone through this, horrible problem for your life and now you have a new challenge parkinson's didn't see this one coming yes. um but i definitely didn't see this one coming and in fact i missed the signs for quite a while um but and, and i want to make sure i circle back to this you know when you talked about sort of the divine appointment of some of what we go through uh i i have a similar sort of feeling about this because it allows me to go through another adversity, very different from the one that I started with OCD and find that some of the principles that help so much with navigating my OCD recovery are already coming into play in a huge way with helping me stay motivated to deal with the Parkinson's. So about a year and a half ago, while I was still working, this was a month or two before I retired from KCBS um, as, as an afternoon anchor there, I started noticing some weird things. I caught myself walking in a really awkward kind of way, thinking, dude, you're walking like a robot. What is up with that? Sometimes it felt like I was walking like a robot. Other times it felt like I was walking like an old man, just kind of shuffling. But I'm thinking, people must be staring at me going, what is wrong with Bell? I mean, something is just not right here. Uh, beyond that, the other thing that I, I remember in a very pronounced way was just staring off into space. And I thought it was a concentration thing. What I now know with the benefit of hindsight of knowing what Parkinson's is all about, it's what's called facial masking. Um, Parkinson's impacts uh, your muscles and, and, and rigidity in a number of different ways. One of them is that your face becomes more rigid as you succumb to part of the disorder's early stages. And so my face lost its ability to make expressions. 
I was kind of stone-faced or I, it looked like I had a mask on. So the rigidity in my shoulders, in my neck, and in my face left me just staring kind of blankly because I wasn't using my facial muscles in a normal way. And again, I thought to myself, people must be staring at me. I look like an, like something's just definitely wrong with me because I just keep blankly staring out there. And then other things started piling on. My voice started changing. Um, I became very monotone and very soft-spoken. I was speaking like this and people kept saying, I can't hear you. I'm thinking, well, what's wrong with you? Listen better. Because it was all these people in my world kept saying, speak up. I'm like, I'm speaking up. What's the problem here? I've come to learn that with Parkinson's, there's a feedback problem, a feedback loop problem, where we're not able to self-regulate the tone of our voice very well. So I didn't realize that I was speaking more softly than usual. My, fo my voice became raspier and it became monotone. Um, and when you work in radio, these are issues that you, you pick up on. And so I was noticing that as well. I started having swallowing problems, um, some concentration issues, uh, just a whole litany of things that didn't add up. And so I went to see my primary care doctor and she ultimately recommended that I see a neurologist. I saw a neurologist, had a brain scan to see if there was something going on there. Um, they ruled that out fairly quickly. I started developing a, a tremor in my left foot, but still not putting any of this together. And, and the irony of all ironies is somewhere along the line of all this, I, I watched the Michael J. Fox documentary called Still. I've always been a huge fan of his. That was excellent. That was the, so the, the film is wonderful, right? Oh, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even connect the dots watching him because I wasn't shaking. I didn't have the dyskinesias that he developed later on where, you know, his whole body was shaking in that kind of way. I didn't connect the dots. Well, neither did my neurologist for the first two visits. By the third visit, um, she said to me, I think we might be looking at something in the Parkinsonism world. And she sent me to a neurologist and that neurologist at UCSF confirmed the diagnosis and said, yeah, this is Parkinson's. And so by the time I got to the diagnosis, this was about a year after my initial symptoms started showing up, I was so relieved that it wasn't so many other things that it could have been, um, that it was like, oh, at least I know what's going on now. And then fortunately for me, fast forwarding the story, I started on a very typical medication for uh, Parkinson's disease called Carbidova levodopa. And um, it has turned my life around. Um, I mean, this is a degenerative disease. I'm, I'm a realist. I know that there are some challenges ahead that I will be addressing as I go. But the good news for me is that the medication has given me back my facial expression. Um, it's addressed the rigidity. It's addressed the, the tremor in my foot. Um, I just feel more on my game all the way around that I'm really fortunate that I have been able to get treatment. So yeah, that's, that's the new journey. It boggles my mind what you're going through with these two very tough diseases. How are you handling it? So far, so good. I've mm. got this amazing rock in my life. My wife, Samantha, she's just been a you know phenomenal resource for me. Um, I, I really feel... I feel very fortunate that this could be a lot worse. Um, and I, through A2A, have worked with so many people dealing with so many different life challenges, so many different adversities, you two included and high on that list, that have taught me so much about how to navigate a challenge with poise and grace and courage. 
And that's, that's what's most important to me. Um, I, the rest of it is secondary. Um, I'm trying to keep my sense of humor. I, I've used a lot of humor in my OCD outreach over the years. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find those, those places where I can work in a, a few jokes along the way. And one of them came to mind the other day where I was, I just wrote a, I, I had just written a, a blog post for psychology today, kind of coming out about my Parkinson's disease. And I realized after I hit publish that I had not, that I had capitalized the D in disease. And actually it's lowercase when you refer to Parkinson's disease as capital P lower D that's the convention. And my OCD doubt bully started saying, well, you're going to screw up people out there because they're not going to know what you're talking about. And I fought the compulsion to go back and change all the references to PD so that the lower, that the D was a lower D and not a capital D. And mm -hmm. I thought, there's the perfect blending of my OCD yeah. and my Parkinson's there disease. You, you know, it's life. If there's one thing that I have learned through this advocacy work that we're doing through A2A and, and in our own journeys is that everybody's got something that they're going through. Everybody's got something. Um, and, and sometimes we just, it, it, it's such a powerful reminder that, you know, yeah, I've got this and you've got that, but we're all dealing with something and there are universal principles that bring us all together. And one of them is this notion that if we take what we've been through and add some purpose to it by being of service to other people, that's going to fuel our motivation and keep us resilient. And I, I just, I mean, it sounds trite. But I know you two know it as well or better than I do at this juncture. And it's it's the message I want to keep putting out there again and again. And that brings us to the end of our first season. And we couldn't say it better than what Jeff just said. That's so true. Jeff just wrapped up everything we've been trying to do with this podcast for this season. And all of the messages that we've been trying to send. He actually sent it, said it much better than we have, I'm sure. But we're very grateful to Jeff for being our last guest of this season and wrapping things up. And we've been so fortunate in the response we've been getting. Number of downloads, people listening. It's far beyond what I ever expected. But we'll be back in a few weeks as we regroup and find more people who can inspire and educate. In the meantime, I'm Mike Sugarman. And I'm Janice Wright. And this is I'm Still Rolling. Mm -hmm.